0: Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. How is it with your soul?
1: I'm, I'm doing okay, though, you know. It's, the pandemic has continued, and um, you know, I'm a little tired of screens. How about you?
0: Yeah, me too, like so many of us around the world. But today we have a wonderful poet whose work has been helping both of us get through the pandemic. Yeah. In uh, spiritual good shape, I think. So, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer.
1: And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and how they between us and to ourselves.
0: Lynn Ungar, the Reverend Dr. Lynn Ungar, is a poet, a Unitarian Universalist minister, and, these are her words, a positive reinforcement trainer who teaches dogs to do complicated and useless things, end quote. Her current mission is exploring the intersection of those three passions, trying to find ways to articulate how we might shape our own behavior and that of those around us in the direction of kinship. In March of 2020, her poem, Pandemic, went viral, and her most recent book of poems, These Days, reflects on life in the extraordinary and uncomfortable times we find ourselves in. Lynn lives in Vancouver, Washington, with her two Australian shepherds, and Lynn, it's a great joy for me to welcome you after 10 or 12 years of fandom, starting with your poem, Camas Lilies, to welcome you to the growing edge. It's such a delight to be here.
1: Yes, welcome, welcome. Uh, it, like Parker, I, I'm just a big fan of, of your work and, and the spirit you bring to it. So um, moving in into poetry, you have two collections, uh, These Days and Breathe, which are, are both just wonderful collections. But we thought it would be great to have you read one of the poems, to hear it in your voice. And... Um, We thought we might start with Revolution. It's just such a wonderful poem, and I love how you bring in the concepts of arming and disarming with a a new and kind of a really thoughtful frame. Would you be open to reading that poem?
2: My pleasure. Revolution. You say you want a revolution, and who could argue with that? Bad is avalanching into worse, and we are all in its path. But don't buy a gun. The people you would be fighting already have bigger guns and more will to shoot them. Don't bother arming yourself. Instead, disarm. Disarm yourself of assumptions and of your brittle belief that you know how things should be. Disarm yourself of expectation. You will be wrong. Disarm yourself of the need for comfort. Go lightly into places where you are a stranger. Disarm yourself of loyalty to what is normal, but false. Pledge allegiance to the tree outside your window, to your neighbor's children, to the speed of light. Fill your arms with fruit, with flowers, with a dog or a cat or a lover or a mug of hot tea. Fill your body with singing or dancing or the scent of bay trees in the rain. Empty your world of all that fails to serve the revolution, that fails the test of the seventh generation. Commit to the revolution, and I promise we will win. Not, of course, that everything will be fine. It never is. Revolution isn't the same as victory. Revolution is the turning of a wheel whose essence is change.
1: Ah.
0: Yes, ah. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, I, we're going to go through that poem and all that it has to say, but let me just say up front that I was so captured by those closing lines where you redefine revolution in a way that really opens something up for me. Uh, it, it, it isn't the same as victory. It's the turning of a wheel, which is its obvious and literal definition, and yet to understand our own actions that way is to kind of liberate ourselves from this nonsensical notion that we have to get results tomorrow, or we should throw in the towel, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you assume that you need to fix things, and that your goal is to fix things and make everything better, then you lose, because there has not ever been a point where everything is fixed, either fixed in the sense of permanent and stable, or fixed in the sense of making everything Thing the way that you wanted it to be so if you define your terms in that way then you've already lost if you determine that the goal is we're gonna move things along then you've got a better chance of success at any rate
0: yeah absolutely one more turn of the wheel is is a possibility in in my day my week my my lifetime anyway and and yet we're in the grip of massive powers when we advocate that approach to life because our whole politics right now is being driven by the what for me is totally nonsensical notion that there was a day when life in the USA was just perfect and we need to reclaim it. Yeah.
2: Perfect for whom seems to be a really sort of significant question that doesn't get asked quite often enough.
0: I think that's right.
2: But yeah. But even that aside, like, there wasn't ever a point in which it was perfect for anybody. Right. Like, some people were more oppressed and some people were less oppressed. And that's a problem. But also, like, it it, it wasn't ever perfect.
0: Right, right.
1: And I do love that idea that it's the turning of the wheel. Parker, you've said it before, that peace, love, truth, and justice in its most completed form will probably not happen in my lifetime. You know you know in its in its highest form no i probably won't see that and so what do i do with that when the work i do what i do moment by moment day by day what i contribute is the turning of a wheel that you know we are standing on the shoulders of ancestors who did exactly that knowing that it would probably not happen in their lifetime but we're faithful in how they presented themselves in the world and how they lived in the world. You know, it was a revolution. Um, that revolution isn't isn't just what we're against, but it's actually what we're for, what we're living into. So, so, so I love that. I really just love that. In the earlier part of the poem, you had some. There's some interesting ways of looking at disarmament. It's not just about guns. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, disarming has a couple of meanings that are fun to play with. Because when you say Mm -hmm. something is disarming, it challenges your assumptions. It puts something of a tilt on things. And so if you think about what's disarming, not only in terms of not using guns, but also what's a disarming experience, then it's an invitation to having your perspective shift, having... There's something a little bit light about a, something being disarming. Yeah. And then there's a possibility of stepping sideways. It's like we want conflict. I don't know, we want conflict. We experience conflict as this kind of push back and forth. And I should be able to shove harder than you do. And to be disarming is the notion of stepping sideways, so that you have, the force goes in a different direction, you're not stuck any longer in the I push harder, you push harder, but now there's a different posture of what happens then. Something had yeah. happened, <laughs> might be good, might be bad, but at least it would be different
0: Yeah. Yeah. So often in conflict, stepping aside in a kind of martial arts fashion means your opponent slams into the wall (laughs) of their own accord. And that's not an altogether bad thing. And then sometimes I slam into the wall and someone else steps aside. And that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned.
1: And, you know, the idea of this being revolutionary, the idea of, of being disarming I don't know if this ever happened to you in, 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 with colleagues or, or people you meet. Um, you know, it's kind of a cocktail party thing. We, we don't have those anymore, but, you know, or I don't think I ever went to a cocktail party, but anyways, but you know what I'm talking about gathering sort of things when you're meeting new people and someone really wants you to know how important they are. And so they, I call it laying out the cards, you know, laying out the cards. And what you're supposed to do is push back and lay out all your cards. See how important I am. But I just found it such an interesting uh, experience that when someone lays out all the cards, um, and I'm supposed to push back, if I just go, pretty cards, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's disarming. And then a conversation can happen, like, ah, I think you're somebody. You are somebody when you walked in the room. I didn't have to see all the cards, you know? Mm -hmm. So there was something really pretty cards, you know, (laughs) about this idea of the line, disarm yourself of loyalty to what is normal, but false.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'd love to go there in a minute. Just one more thing about disarmament, because I think it's such a fruitful topic. And incidentally, Carrie, the parties you've gone to have been veggie dip and scrabble. I mean, I know this. Well,
1: (laughs) there's that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> sounds better so, so pretty cards really works in that context pretty cards yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. I think the notion of disarmament as you're using it in this poem uh, Lynn um, don't bother arming yourself instead disarm is tied for, in my mind very intimately with the notion that violence is a much wider, broader, deeper concept than we normally Uh, uh, you know, give it credit for. Many people think of violence as punching a person in the face, shooting a gun, starting a a war. And yet there are subtle forms of violence that we do every day, uh, institutionally and individually, to other people. Um, it, It occurred to me once that violence is actually any way we have Of violating the identity and integrity of another person and Mm -hmm. so in in school settings where the only kind of intelligence that gets honored is cognitive intelligence rather than all the other forms of intelligence that exist artistic intelligence relational intelligence problem-solving intelligence we're doing violence to kids by trying to cram them into one size of intelligence fits all. Um, to make, say the obvious, when we diss people or marginalize people on the basis of demographic characteristics, we do violence to their identity and integrity as human beings. So I, I'd love to know in, in, in your um, life and work, you must see that, at work a lot, and I'd love to hear your reflections on it, as part of disarmament, uh, laying down the weapons that create violence.
2: My worldview these days, and it goes back to the introduction, is largely shaped around looking at the enormous need we seem to have to believe in a sort of religious way in punishment, that... There is this cultural assumption that the way to fix people and fix situations is to identify who is bad and punish them for it. And when you start looking at learning theory and how beings change, and pretty much any being human or otherwise, it turns out it's a lot more effective to figure out what is it that I'm looking for and how can we move in that direction as opposed to how can I identify this is the bad behavior and the bad people and how do we punish them and control them Um, and it turns out that being the Punisher is gratifying, it feels like we've done a thing even if it hasn't actually managed to change anything but it's immediate and it's quick and you've done a thing whereas changing behavior through reinforcement through support through working toward a thing that you want is complicated and slow and incremental and you have to do it by small pieces but it actually changes things it is possible for things to evolve and grow and i think that violence is another way of saying that urge to punish that belief that we can control by making things different, by just knowing more strongly that someone else is wrong and they need to suffer for it. And if they're not changing, it's because they're not suffering enough and we just mm-hmm. need to up the level of punishment and mm-hmm. you know, people get killed that way.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. And it's all tied, isn't it, to our uh, to, to our definition of the arena of behavior that we're talking about and the kinds of behaviors that we find acceptable within that arena. So again, to go to the educational example, a child comes into school, this child has fantastic uh, eye for beauty, artistic intelligence, relational problem-solving intelligence, and then finds himself punished by a system that punishes it because he or she doesn't have cognitive high degrees of cognitive intelligence. They're not good at test taking, for example. And the system justifies it by saying, well, we're serving you well by trying to develop your cognitive intelligence, you know, by reminding you how inadequate you are every time you fall short of our norms. So it becomes a very uh, uh, hard knot to untie, seems to me.
2: Well, and it might be that that cognitive development is something that could flower if instead of saying, these are all the ways in which you are inadequate, we gave you a test and the numbers are not good enough. You looked at what are the, what invitation to grow is going to help you? How can we take what you're already good at and use that to support some things that would be possibilities for you that you haven't yet gotten to What's an, an unfolding as opposed to what's a
0: judgment? Yeah, absolutely, and that's a very real-life example. A quick story: I have a son who has a Ph.D. in microbiology and is doing groundbreaking research on the HIV/AIDS virus. Wow! He he was had a learning disability in grade school. They wanted to hold him back. He we lucked out, and they, he found a teacher who valued his innate ability to do pottery beautifully, gracefully, well. By, by age 14, he was making pots that people wanted to pay $100 for. And on that affirmation, he built a scientific career that wow. has now taken him, taken him to very high-functioning places in science. So I think what you say is so important.
1: Yes. You know, and that idea of, of supporting, how did you put it again? It was, it was looking at where you want to go. And, and then what are the things that we can do to support that, you know, that instead of how do we punish for not already being there in some ways, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and I, I just, that's just a, a really beautiful concept in this poem. There's also things, you know, you kind of shift somewhere kind of midway through the poem where you're disarming yourself of the need for comfort to go lightly where you're a stranger, disarm yourself of loyalty to what's normal but false, you know. But at, And then you turn around and say, you know, pledge allegiance to the tree outside the window to fill your arms with fruit and flowers, with a dog or a cat or a lover or a mug of hot tea. It's like that, you know, revolution is, yes, looking at what's normal but false. And at the same time, it's embracing what's true. You know, it's like, you know, that delight is an act of resistance in a way to be truly in love with these things that are, that are dear and true. Um, so I, I love that shift, you know, it's like, we're we're not going to blink the hard stuff here. We're not going to pretend like this is all candy coated here. It's, this is hard stuff. What's normal, but false. But then, you know, what is it that sustains us? I really, I I really love that shift.
2: It's always a challenge because I think we're always in a state of not good enough. This thing needs to be fixed. What our view is never complete. What we're doing is never sufficient. And how you put that together with yes, but also what moves us in the right direction, what do we cherish, what do we love, what do we want to protect, what fills us, what is the thing that we want more of for everyone, as opposed to what's the bad thing that's not good enough that we have failed to fix today.
0: And I, I think you chose exactly to, to focus again on where Carrie was earlier and right now as well. I think you chose exactly the right word when you when you chose the word allegiance, pledge allegiance to the tree outside your window, to your neighbor's children, to the speed of light. Uh, I, lo- I love that one because there, there needs to be a call these days to pledge allegiance to simple facts of that sort. Um, I think great transformations happen in people's lives and work when they figure out what they owe their loyalty to. Um, I've, I've seen that happening in the work I do with physicians, for example, who, who suddenly understand at a kind of bone-deep level that their allegiance is is to the patient that they have pledged to do no harm to, not to the rules of the HMO, which constrain them to practices that will result in harm. They know that very well. It transforms the lives of teachers who realize I've taken the equivalent of a Hippocratic Oath in relation to the kids I teach. That's where my allegiance belongs, more than it does to the high-stakes test, testing and the score outcomes which louse up relationships with parents, with colleagues, and with the kids in my charge themselves. So it, it seems to me it's a huge question, and i I'd love to hear anything more you might want to say to us about pledging allegiance uh, as, as as an act we can all be thinking about in our own parts of the world.:
2: I think that people who would like to control you would start with your pledging allegiance to them, and mm-hmm. I think it's a I would say deeply religious act to identify this is what I hold as true, this is my loyalty, This is these are the big things that I actually owe my life to. And I think that's a really enormous personal responsibility that gets shirked because there are a lot of avenues, media, locations telling you this is what's in charge, this is what matters, this is what you need to do, this is who you need to be, this is what you need to be supporting. And to actually do that self differentiation and ask, is that really it? Mm -hmm. Where does my loyalty actually belong? It's not easy. It's a big job, but it it is. is kind of a crucial calling.
1: It is, it is a big job and it, it takes discernment too, you know, and, and pausing and saying, what is it? You know, empty your world of all that fails to serve the revolution, you know, that fails the test of the seventh generation. You know, what is it that I, I, that is sustainable and my deepest values? What are the most deepest, beautiful values that I have? And am I living into them in a way that I'm being faithful to them. You know, and I I think what you're talking about is yeah, you know, it is a deeply spiritual process of stopping. And what is it at the heart, the very heart of who I am? Who do I owe my or what do I owe my life to? And and that takes a lot of continuing reflection because you know that's gonna that that's gonna shift, and your as your understanding of your own place in the world, and your and as experience, you know Quakers have a a line about holding it up to the light, which I always have liked. You know, it's like if you don't know what to do, hold it up to the light, and this idea of hold hold this decision in the light of everything true, um, that doesn't serve the revolution doesn't serve revolutionary love, you know, as Valerie Cower would have said. So, yeah, how do we keep holding it up to the light, you know, on a daily basis when so many voices are pulling us in directions?
0: And and that's where I think we come to the the end of this poem, much as I could talk about it for another hour or two. I could, uh, too. With its, with its emphasis on revolution as the turning of a wheel, because... That's something each of us can do. Uh, There are high stakes here, as you said, Lynn. You might even get punished for declaring your allegiance to the, quote, wrong thing. Uh, Mm -hmm. It happens. Uh, But each of us can uh, work on those slight turnings of the wheel that ultimately make a difference, if not in my generation, then in generations to come. Lots, Lots and lots of examples of that. But let me let me turn from this wonderful poem, and before we get to another wonderful poem, there's so many to choose from that we had a hard time focusing in on just a few for this podcast. We really did. We went kept back and forth.
1: Each other going, oh, but that's a great one too. <laughs> yeah,
0: went back and forth for an hour, and we'll lift up the books where these wonderful poems are are to be found uh, on our website. One book called Breathe, Poems by Lynn Ungar, and the other book called These Days, Poetry of the Pandemic Age by Lynn Ungar. Um, I want to ask a a kind of meta question, not that the others haven't been meta, but (laughs) (laughs) uh, this one has to do with um, your understanding of the role of the artist in times like these, the the voice of the artist uh, in our national discourse. Um, I always have the sense that those of us who toss ideas, images, metaphors, thoughts, possibilities, etc., into this vast, complicated, conflicted national discourse, are um, throwing pebbles, stones in the river, as one of Kerry's songs goes. Um, I didn't like the idea of just throwing stones in the river until I heard Carrie's song, and it helped me with a change of consciousness about the importance of doing that. But how do you understand the voice of the poet to be useful in our time? Uh, I read an article the other day that said, literature, this is a quote from a writer whose name I've lost, literature is perhaps the art form most able to resist the kind of oversimplification required by polarized political debate, end quote. So sort of in that force field, what are your thoughts about the voice of the poet?
2: I think in the same way that we talked about disarming being stepping sideways, that there's so much argument going on and art, poetry, literature, music, has a different kind of a conversation. There isn't a right and a wrong, this is true, this is not. Poetry offers a way of holding things up at the same time that might seem contradictory and it's by its nature integrative. Metaphor is at the heart of poetry and metaphor is about connecting things in a way that you would not expect them to be connected and the act of committing to things could be connected in ways that we didn't expect. We could be connected in ways that we didn't expect. We could see things and have them strike us in a way that we had not originally imagined or we could hear something and go, oh, I knew that, but I didn't have words for it. That's the thing that I I had, but I didn't have. It's all a different kind of discourse. It's a different kind of connection. And one of the things that I have reluctantly come to realize is that Mostly people don't choose on the basis of what makes sense, what's reasonable, what's logical, even what's true. Mostly people choose on the basis of identity. Mm -hmm. And so art offers a way of inviting people into a kind of identity, a kind of community. It's a way of opening a little room and saying, here, would you like to to come and enter this room, look out of
0: my window for a section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah. and it, it may, in that sense, uh, offer uh, a kind of shaking of one's identity. I mean, that's how art functions for me. You know, I mean, to put it really in a simple-minded way, uh, as a guy who gets angry about certain features of our politics these days and certain ways that people make claims on each other, um, I get shaken every time I read a poem or hear a song that basically says, "Be nice, you know. <laughs> be, <laughs> be nice. <laughs> Don't walk around so ticked off all the time. Uh, it, it doesn't serve anyone well, including you. So that shakes my identity. You know, I could cultivate an identity as an angry old man." I guess. Uh, but it, uh, I, I, I read a lot of stuff and listen to a lot of stuff that says, that's not a great idea, Parker, <laughs> probably.
2: Well, and I'm, I'm not sure that nice is really that fabulous of a goal. And I think they're like nice seems to be a kind of abdication into falseness. I agree. But it's but a low bar for could...
0: people like me, though. <laughs>
2: But if something says we are all in this together, we might be nice about it or we might not be nice about it. But if we remember that we're all in the same thing, we're all trying to get through this, and we're connected as opposed to we're trying to stamp out the ones that we're not connected to, anything that says now we're we're all connected even to the people that don't make any sense (laughs) what do you think you're doing why um and and I spend a lot of time in that that mode and we're still all connected and in this thing together what do we do about that I, I don't know if being nice is the answer but somehow remembering that We're connected and and that you could care about somebody and still be pissed off
0: right right yeah exactly yeah that's exactly right
1: there's a a a false niceness you talk about yeah i I like how you created a, a, a um i don't know a different way of looking at that a shift in looking at that 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 you know if you as long as you know that you're connected you don't have to agree On every issue you don't even you can even be pretty upset or angry or but if you know you're connected and that we're connected on certain levels and I think art I don't know sometimes you know I'm thinking as a songwriter that you know and in the context of a song that people can see themselves in one another you know that there's something about the song that that says oh Yeah, we differ on some things, sometimes in really important ways in terms of our opinions, but I recognize you. I recognize you as a human being there, you know, in the context of a poem, you know, in the context of a song, in the context of a story, three minutes of empathy happening. And that can be a really powerful thing right now. I think especially, you know, this whole book of poetry of the pandemic age, You know, there's so many things we've shared, you know, across all these, what, you know, would be called all kinds of dividing lines. Um, um, But there are so many things we share. So many, I mean, we are intimately connected by the very air we breathe, you know, and that became so apparent, you know, this is in terms of a pandemic. It's like, yeah, we're all connected here. You know, completely physically through the air we breathe um, in proximity to one another, just in a really physical way. But we're also connected in terms of the experiences we're having with uncertainty, with, you know, what to do with these divisive moments that are just being um, lifted up and even manufactured for political
0: gain. I think that, you know, the moments that are hard for me are the moments when I believe that we're all connected. You know, we all breathe the same air. And so I have a responsibility around what I put into that air that might endanger other people. But yep. some of those other people don't believe the same thing. And they don't regard me in, that, in, an, in an equal light. And I do have a, an, an honest question about how to reach those people. I mean, I think a lot of us are asking an honest question about that. And I was teasing myself about niceness, because as I said, that's a low bar for people like me, who uh, have a hard time under some circumstances, even being nice, even faking uh, compassion. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in that question, and also in the question of whether the arts reach people who, who, who who don't intuit or can't reason their way through to this connection that seems so obvious to me that we breathe the same air.
2: Yeah. It's it's such a hard problem and it's certainly one that I think about a lot and I find it incredibly frustrating and certainly people create identities around values that are different than the values that I create my identity around. And so if your identity has been molded, and I would suggest perhaps by people who have an agenda that might not be to your advantage, but if freedom is to you about individuality, about defining my particularity and my right to do whatever I want with that particularity, it's hard to square that with an identity of kinship and connection. Those are different values, and I don't know that I can expect that someone whose identity is centered around their Freedom in a way that defines the, their separateness and their rights and I can do what I want because I want to do it, if that's what's most important to you, I don't know how to approach that, except that I can only imagine that when you get down to it, those people do feel just as responsible to their families as I do. Maybe feel responsible to their neighbors. I I wish I had a solution. Um, be, be nice if you could just, like, drop poems on people's houses I and actually, I, make I actually better. think,
0: Lynn, that, that what helps me is, your, is the poem we explored a moment ago, This is the point at which I have to talk to myself and say, grab hold of that wheel and make one little move toward another revolution. Just one little move. That's all it takes. See if I can nudge in a little bit on this situation. I actually find that very helpful.
2: Well, the thing I've been thinking about lately is that the thing that I don't have room for, patience for, think there's any justification for, is contempt that I think that there are a lot of ways which we are moved into contempt for other people, which is a form of dehumanizing. That yeah. Those people are not the real people and they don't deserve to be treated like the real people. And when you take contempt off the table, you can be angry, yeah. you can be unhappy, you can be disappointed, you can be confused and struggling. Yeah. And those things all seem to me perfectly good things to have on the table. There's no reason to say you shouldn't be angry or you shouldn't be sad. But only in the context of this equality of humanity. Yeah. You you are not subhuman. I respect you enough to be unhappy with what you're doing because I don't think it's helping any of us but that's different you
1: know I think too it's like you're talking about you know you don't fix it by dropping poems on people but you know at the same time anything that shifts the conversation anything that opens up a window your your poems they don't shy away from the conversations we're having uh, in in public discourse right now. You don't really shy away from that. But the way you approach them is with a, a a frame of let's let's shift how we're looking at this. Let's or let's open the space of how we're looking at this. let's let's welcome each other into this space, even if that's difficult in this moment, you know, but maybe the point is not to fix, but to, And have an answer but to have a really good question your poems often ask really good questions and leave the 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 reader and listener to to think about that you know what is that and what does that question mean for me what does it mean for my family what does that mean for my community you know what does it mean for the world so you know I really have appreciated that is that you don't shy away from from topics of Public discourse at all, but you enter you enter into them with with uh, a creating a space, creating an open space for that conversation, for that shift of perspective to happen, which I I, I really that's a that's a very artful thing to be able to do and um, and not easy. So I I really appreciate that.
0: I'll, I second that. Sharon and I read your books through weeks and weeks of breakfasts after breakfasts, and had that very experience of you reframing things in ways that opened things up rather than shutting things down.
1: And with humor, I love yeah. that so many of your poems have this one. I mean, okay, you kind of every now and then you're like, look at the world kind of sideways and throw out something, and it's just like, oh gosh.
2: I do find I have a lot more questions in the world than answers. I guess that's one thing to say for poetry is that it gives you the you know if I were doing well, I'm I'm stopping myself mid sentence because I was like well if I were doing science and you I would need to be coming up with answers but not questions but I'm not sure that's actually mm-hmm. true, but certainly I do have a lot of question marks in my poems and yeah I do think of them as a kind of conversation. I like conversation. I like talking to people. I like that exchange. And so if a poem can sort of step out into the world as an invitation to conversation, thinking about things together, because we come up with better ideas together than by ourselves, I'm, I'm happy about that. Well,
1: should we move on to another poem? And you know, really, honestly, Parker and I, when we were preparing for this this conversation today, we read so many. I was like, oh gosh, I love that one. Could we maybe do them all? I said, no, I don't <laughs> think we can do them all. Um, and and you had some suggestions too, but you know, we we uh, we I wanted to. Uh, go from the the macro, the 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 large societal picture, and kind of bring it back home, close in, and 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 you you do that often with your poems. You'll you you know you'll open up the space to the the large frame, but then always kind of bringing it back to human size, really human size things. And um, and there was a poem called Weaving. And I have, to, I have to tell you, uh, full disclosure, a couple of my really dear friends are weavers. Are you a weaver? I'm not,
2: actually. <clears throat> I'm sadly someone who doesn't do crafty kinds of things. I don't knit, and I don't sew, and I think it would be... I, I have lots of friends who do and make wonderful things, but um, I can't lay claim to actually creating anything tangible, which seems a little sad and, to me. Well,
1: you knew... you. Well, you have appreciation for weaving uh, in this poem. I do love weaving, yes. and
2: I do have friends who do it, and I, I admire the finished product, I just don't have any capacity to do it myself.
1: <laughs> well, would you, would you mind reading that one? And it's about weaving, sure. but it's about more than weaving.
2: Weaving. First, set the warp. The plain, stable threads that hold the pattern in place. The infrastructure of joy the girders that hold up all we build of meaning or justice or peace. Use strong threads left by those who have gone before. Only then pick up the weft, the colored thread that you will use to weave according to your plan. Choose carefully. This is what the world will see, each tiny act that builds the bright pattern of your life. Yes. The threads will tangle or knot or fray and the flaws will show. Oh well, tuck in the ends as best you can and start again. This is not the time to stop your weaving. So much as pulling at the great design.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you. Weaving has always been for me an amazing metaphor for um, constructing a life, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I love it because it, it's, it is one thread at a time and in many traditions, as I understand it, um, there has to be a loose thread or, or the design is, is, is somehow flawed. It's the, it's the loose thread that validates the design and there has to be a dark thread. Without the dark thread running through it, it's, it's not real. What I especially love about the weaving metaphor is that it's all about holding tension in a creative way um, and and that's what the loom does. and it's been fascinating for me to think about the loom on which I weave my own life, which actually loops back a little bit to the conversation about being nice. Uh, <laughs> It's a loom in which I have to learn to hold tensions, including those very severe tensions with people uh, with whom I find myself in radical, fundamental disagreement around existential questions. Um, or else I can't continue to weave my life. And And I'd, I'd love to hear you, even though neither you nor I is a weaver, I'd love to hear you th- uh, think out loud a little about What's what's within the, that metaphor for you?
2: It has a lot of pieces to it, I guess. Like a, a weaving literally has a lot of pieces to it. And I think, I mean, the poem is very much about there's an undergirding that you don't see. The structure comes from beyond you, your community, your ancestors, your values, your traditions, the poets that you've read your teachers everything that when you get a finished product you don't see those warp threads but it's what holds everything together and I think we often want to pretend that the part that shows my particular actions my individuality my accomplishments are the the real thing it's like well it's a real thing and it matters but it's not the only thing and you shouldn't forget that everything that you're creating that's visible is tied <laughs> literally in the case of a weaving to a whole structure history context that makes it all possible
1: yeah. yeah I um this last week I was reading in a book that actually Parker and his wife Sharon gave me for Christmas it's about trees it's a, it's a collection of essays about trees and one of the essays talked about how there's six basic patterns that trees use to grow from seed to adult tree and then back again and then but with each tree you know with each it's kind of in each one's kind of like a song like a poem like a song but life happens And so there's endless variations. It's like a beech tree is a beech tree is a beech tree, but no two beech trees look alike because, you know, they encounter having to turn toward a light. Uh, They have to, they encounter critters of many legs, you know, or two legs and they, they just, there's all these things that happen to it and it, it makes the individual expression, you know, complex and beautiful um, and interesting uh, but it's a basic song that it's based upon, you know. And I thought of that, you know, when you're talking about the, the warp, these, these strong threads, the song that runs through a weaving, you know, that holds, holds this, um, in you know, this foundation together. And then all these, I love when you said, this is what the world sees, each tiny act that builds the bright pattern of your life that you base your life upon these these strong threads, this beautiful song, and yet this is mine, this is my life, and this is how it expresses, this is the pattern that it shows to the world. And choose, when you say, choose carefully because of how you would like that that pattern to express. Um, but then also, you, I, I also said, you know, the, it's going to tangle and knot and fray. You know, it's like, okay, this that stuff's going to happen. You know, the tree it's like, okay, a storm happened and something changed how the tree was growing. It's like like, yep, stuff's going to happen. And yet tuck in the ends. Do the best you can. Start again. You know, there's just there was this really lovely kindness about it. Um, not niceness, kindness kind of a kindness about it this do the best you can and start again uh but this idea of the expression of each person's life being based upon a foundation i mean is is that was i am i reading something into it that
2: that you know no i th- i think that's exactly right i think that we choose and our choices are important and also there's so much we don't get to choose. Yeah, that's I mean, true. It's the same as the song with the trees. Like s- some of it you just get for better or for yeah. worse, better and for worse. And also we make choices and each of those individual choices is one little loop. Yeah. And it's Only when you look back and you see the accumulation of all of those little choices, all of those little loops, that you find out what kind of a pattern your life as a whole has tended toward. (gasps) And I don't think you can see that with each little loop, but there's some way in which we're trying to make those choices in ways that are going to move toward a pattern that we like.
1: I like that, that you can't always tell in the, in the moment with each loop that looking back, it's like, ah, I was choosing colors. I was choosing something that would create a pattern of connection, uh, a pattern of, uh, you know, the next revolution of the wheel. I was choosing for, for, for each loop. And and then looking back and saying ah, or on the opposite side of that, you know, I'm I'm choosing you know dark threads. I'm choosing a pattern that comes out of fear, you know, and there's this pattern of fear that runs through all of it, you know. So it, I think that's really interesting. I I didn't catch that. So wow, I'm, I'm I'm sitting this with this idea of not knowing loop by loop, but when you look back what each loop contributed to the pattern.
2: I think it's worth noting that beauty isn't the same thing as perfection Mm -hmm. or symmetry. And like what we find most beautiful generally has some unexpected quality to it. And to be able to look back and see the beauty that comes, not because everything was just how you planned it, but because... Uh, that, that's where the excitement and the change and the growth and the humanity is in that complexity.
0: Absolutely, and it's reassuring as we as we come to an end of, of this very engaging conversation. I hate to bring it to an end or start to bring it to an end, but it's reassuring for me to know that the ugly thought I had this morning might by tomorrow be woven into something of beauty <laughs> for someone. We'll, <laughs> we'll see. I'll wake. I'll let you know tomorrow.
1: Well, and that. <laughs> You end the poem, you know, as before, right before you know we go on. This is not the time to stop your weaving, so much as pulling at the great design, and that I think during, particularly during the last couple of years of the pandemic, there's been a sense of a great unraveling, you know, and that it's not time to stop weaving, even if we make mistakes, and we have to go back and start again. That you tuck in the ends. It's not going to be perfect. I did not expect this, but it's not time to stop the weaving because it's so important that we all continue to weave, you know? So thank you so much for that poem. I mean, it was,
2: yeah. <laughs> thank you.
1: So, so moving forward in our conversation, um, one of the things that we do, uh, with people, uh, in conversation on the growing is we ask we ask what's on your growing edge, you know, personally, spiritually, vocationally, politically. I mean, what's on your growing edge right now?
2: It's not a simple question, not a simple answer. I vocationally I'm kind of up in the air at the moment. Um but it has something to do with how do we hold the pieces together. How do we hold the overwhelming grief of climate change, yeah. of political division, of racism, of all of those things that are existentially heart wrenching, and also hold on to? the joy, the beauty, the incredible gifts that we have, the incredible opportunities that we have, the incredible connections that we have. How how do we not let go of any of those pieces and find some place to live that isn't crazy making, mm-hmm. that doesn't let go of the pieces And that tries somehow to nudge things in the direction of more joy, but also more justice, more peace, more possibility for everyone. And I think it has something to do with engaging discomfort. Mm. I, I find it notable that there are school districts that are starting to say, oh, teachers can't teach these things because it will make the children uncomfortable. We can't talk about slavery. We can't talk about the Holocaust because, or we can't talk about ongoing systemic racism. It will make people feel bad. It's like, And I'm somebody who likes comfort at least as much as the next person and probably more. Like, really enjoy my comforts. Um, But it seems like the discomfort is what you have to actually walk into to get to that place where it's possible to hold both the joy and the tragedy. I yeah. I don't think there's probably another way in. And I I would like it better if you could just stick with the comfort route and and get to that place, but I, I don't actually think it's possible. Yeah. And so the question of how might we walk into the discomfort because the promise of that authenticity and that connection and that ability to understand one another and to see ourselves in someone else's eyes and to know someone else's story, that that is in fact the route to the joy and the sense of expansion and possibility.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. If the price of finding comfort is to live in denial of reality, that's way too high a price, it seems to me.
2: And comfort seems somehow much smaller than joy. Like that, that seems like the cheap prize rather than the, the really big thing that you wanted. Ah.
0: Amen to that.
1: Yeah. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> <laughs> comfort is the cheap prize when joy. Oh.
0: Thank you so much, Lynn. This has just been wonderful. They're just wonderful. Oh. We so appreciate it.
2: Well, such a joy to be able to talk with you both.
0: And please keep writing poetry. I hope that's on your growing edge too.
2: Yeah, still at it. I, every time I think, I, I don't know that I have anything else to say, and then turns out there, there's something more. So <laughs> I, I'm trying to have faith that it will continue to be the case, that I will still have things to say.
0: May it be so. So we're going to close out by reading one more poem from Lynn Ungar. This is from her book, These Days, Poetry of the Pandemic Age. It's called Keeping Faith. I'm going to take the the first bunch of lines and Carrie's going to take us out. It's hard these days to know what to believe in. I still pray to goodness, truth, and mercy, but I am starting to suspect there are stronger gods and war brewing on the mountain. Hope is still in the pantheon, but optimism slunk off a while back. Joy and her sister Delight still come around, and I leave the door open as I can.
1: But sometimes it's hard for the soul to keep faith. I'm trying to listen, behind its high, anxious whine, to the prayers of the flesh. Tea, says the body. Rain. Lavender red leaves pie
0: and especially pie (laughs) (laughs)
2: especially pie especially pie
0: You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer.
1: Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode.
0: And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too.
1: And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation.
0: All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change.
1: And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production, and because she is better than pie.